process. It happens last night was an event, but there was a lot of work that went into preparing that, and now there's a lot of work after it because there were people here that were invited by you, and they were new to me, but they're not new to you, many of you. I encourage you to follow up with them. Don't leave that to pastor. <laughs> he got enough to do. But follow up. Engage in their lives. It takes a lot of time to interact with somebody, and it takes entering into their lives. Asking them how you can pray for them. Go and have coffee, guys, with a fellow friend. I, I used to go to a, a, a it's like one of those gas stations where you go buy your gas, you get your coffee, and if you want to buy a donut or whatever, there's a, there's, in the front of the gas station there's some booths, you know, you can go sit down, meet a friend, that kind of thing. They're, they're kind of going away, but they used to be all over the place. In upstate New York, uh, I was in there every morning as a church planter. I spent six days a week in that little restaurant or that little gas station because it was the hub of where in this small community where everybody stopped for gas and everybody stopped for coffee. And so I just spent from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. every morning in that little place. I'd get my coffee. I had my Bible with me. I was usually reading a book. And anytime anybody walked through the door, I just said, morning. So I did that for nine years every morning. And I got to know people. And there was this one guy, he, he was another booth holder, <laughs> except his name was Don. Uh, we called him, his name is Don Baker. We called him Beer Can Baker. That was his name around town. He was a tough old coot, you know. He was an ex-military, ex-marine, tough as nails, elderly gentleman, gruff as all get out. And I said morning to him, I don't know how many times in the first year, he never would say a word to me. He, he lived kitty corner to the church building. He wouldn't say a word. And I'd still say, morning, Don. He'd just sit there. One morning I walk in, I'm getting my coffee, and all of a sudden Don speaks up. He's already at his booth. He goes, morning, preacher. <laughs> I don't know why I got a response out of him. So I did what any good believer does. I responded in kind. You know, Paul says, I become all things to all men that I may win some. And Don was tough as nails, and he did not need a Wilbur milk toast to respond to him. So I got my coffee. I just said, and there's other guys around that I got to know, and they're his buddies, and I got to know. I just said, morning, you old sinner. <laughs> and all the guys went, ha, Don! He got you. He nailed you, man. That went on for over a year. He said the same thing every morning to me. Morning, you old. Murray. He didn't say that to me. He said, morning, preacher. And I said the same thing to him. We didn't say much else. I went to my booth. He went to his booth. And my men, we, they ended up, the guys at church, they ended up calling it pastor's booth. They made a ministry out of it. And so they put it in the bulletin. Pastor's going to be at such a storage gas station every morning from 6 to 8 and stop. You know, worked it out. Stop and have coffee. I said, you show up, guys, on your way to work. I'll buy you coffee. We'll have prayer together. We'll do a short devotional. We'll just, we'll just spend time. It was part of my discipleship. But I noticed over about a year and a half, Don kept turning his head listening. And one morning, I walk in, and I'm getting my coffee, and Don doesn't say a word. I go, what? Something's changed. 
on my way to my booth. And old beer can baker looked up at me and said, you want to sit with me, preacher? And I said, it'd be a privilege. I never left that booth until Don went home to be with his Lord. He got saved. Because it takes time. You can't give up on people just because they're gruff. You don't let them walk all over you. I didn't let Don walk all over me. I gave it back to him just like he gave it to me. But I did it out of love. And so when we, when we come to the area of reaching people, we take really good news to them. And this morning I want you to open your Bibles to a very familiar text of the Scriptures. And it's the Great Commission, but I'm not going to look at the Great Commission I'm going to look at the verse before it. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And I want, to, I want to preach on verse 18. Because I believe it's the key to the Great Commission. Um, by the way, I, I don't know if she's in the room, but uh, Becky Chapman, you just did. Where are you? You did a great job taking care of the stuff at the apartment. Thank you. That was a very nice note, and I really appreciate it. It was very comfortable. Somebody's watching over that, and uh, somebody's serving, and uh, I was served well. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. Um, Also, Betty, if she's in the auditorium, Betty, I want you to know, Betty, that our staff's praying for you, okay? And uh, we care deeply. Thank you for honoring us as an agency in your thoughts. Um, you know, God's at work. In, a, in the midst of our sorrow, you know, we're still, we're still mourning the loss of one of our, our, our people, 37-year-old Amy Wilmoth, passed away in January, and we miss her deeply. But, you know, God's at work in the midst of the sorrow, and he's in the work in, in the midst of all that he's doing in our lives. He's there. And I want to I look at this text this morning. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, and I'll give you exactly what I want to accomplish in this verse, what I believe this verse wants us to know. There's, there's a, preachers always bear, boil things down into three categories generally when we're speaking. What does the passage say? We're going to look at that. What does the passage mean? And then what does the passage mean to me? And I trust when we leave here, A few thoughts from this text will resonate in our lives. To not know just what it says, but to know what it means, the significance of it. And then the significance of it applied to our lives as we try to implement and work out verse 19 and 20, which is the Great Commission, in our lives. So let's uh, dive in, but let's do that as we pray. Let's begin it with prayer. Yeah, I was, I've been reading through the Bible. Some of you, I'm sorry, some of you started lowering your heads. Sorry, I didn't mean to fake you out on that, okay? Um, I've been reading through this morning. I'm reading in Numbers. If you're reading through the Bible, you're in Numbers. But not too long in Numbers is, you know, it can really, it's Numbers, you know, lots of people. Um, but reading through Leviticus... And now numbers. I'm so thankful that I haven't got to go out and kill a lamb this morning. I don't have to shed the blood of a, 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 
a sheep or if I didn't have any money, I'd get, have to go get a turtle dove. Um, I don't have to. We, none of us have to do that this morning. I needed to confess things in my life. I don't have, I don't have to go to a priest to confess. I get to go directly to the God of heaven. He's now called my father, the great almighty God. Because, and this text has everything to do about it, because I have a a human representative at his right hand, and his name is Jesus. And so I'm going to talk to the great God of the whole earth, the father of lights, the Father, all of, all of who He is. And I'm going to do that through our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk about that. Who bears in His body, His resurrected body, the price of my redemption. And He represents us before God. That's a wonderful truth. Wonderful truth. That's why we ought to come out to that prayer meeting to pray together. Because we, we don't pray in vain because there's a God that hears us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so thankful that we can, as a congregation, a call out to you. And we come to you not in the basis of our own righteousness, as though we have some merit with you on our own. We come to you on the basis of the righteousness of your Son, who in his body bore our sin. But we're so thankful we have a relationship with you, no longer as the great judge of all the earth, but as a heavenly Father. And you exchanged with us our sin and took that from us and then gave us Christ's righteousness so that we would have this access through him. And we ask that you will interact with us today as our heavenly father. And if someone, father, has wandered into this place or possibly even comes here and does not know you as a heavenly father, through Jesus, your son, our savior, might you make it really clear today the very words of your Son, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me, through him. So give us, as we unpack this one little verse, this one statement from you, Jesus, you spoke these words. Open them to us. Use your spirit in our lives. Hedge this place in so that the evil one will not have access and be able to disrupt what you desire to do. We confess to you our need for you to move us. We even in this moment may need to confess to you our sin, our failure, our missing the mark this week. Help us not to be so bold that we think we can have access to you while we carry the burden of sin in our lives. But we're so thankful that we can get rid of it and be cleansed, as your word so clearly says to your children, if you confess your sin, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bless our time in this text. Use it for your purposes, for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' wonderful name, we pray. Amen. If I could um, give the historical setting of this verse. Uh, Obviously, Jesus has already been born of a virgin some 30 years earlier or whatever. Born of a virgin. That union, I want to talk about that union a little bit when I get to part of the, the, the text. But he's already been born of a virgin, already lived his life, already at this point has gone to the cross, already went to the grave, already has resurrected from the grave into his, his resurrected to a, a physical resurrected body, overcame death, overcame the grave, and now he's standing before his disciples in his glorified body, bearing in his body the marks of crucifixion. Remember what he said to, to uh, um, Thomas, when doubting Thomas, put your finger in the holes in my hand, your hand in my side, and what did Thomas do? He fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. But this is the setting when he talks, speaks these words. He has already accomplished redemption. He's already overcome the grave. And he is about ready, according to Acts 1. This is a parallel passage to Acts 1. He is on the brink of his ascension where he's going to leave this earth after so many days out of the grave and meeting with over 500 people. He's going to ascend back from where he came and he's going to arrive in heaven in something we many times miss. When he arrives in heaven, according to the book of Hebrews, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to become our advocate. And in his arrival, he tells the disciples in Acts chapter 1, stay here in Jerusalem because there's somebody coming. And the Holy Spirit, when he arrives, the Holy Spirit's coming, and he's going to indwell you, and he's going to, he's going to take up residency in you, and he will guide you into all kinds of things. So when Jesus speaks these words, he is in this place just before his ascension. Now, there's three things in this one little verse that I want to deal with. I want to look at in regards to this commission that's going to happen in verse 19 and 20 and what we try to live out. He's going to he's going to this text is going to talk about the person of this commission. That's the first thing I want to deal with. The person of this commission Secondly, he's going to talk about the provision for this commission. And thirdly, he's going to talk about the place of this commission, how it works out. Now, that's what the text says, and let's read it. Verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, here's what what I'm going to deal with. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Then we go into the commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Commission is 19 and 20. 
I want to deal with just verse 18. I could spend a month of Sunday speaking on 19 and 20. I'm not going to touch 19 and 20. So let's deal with the person of this commission. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. What does he mean by that? That's what it says. What does it mean? He is talking not about his humanity here. He is not talking about the flesh and bones that have been resurrected. He's talking about his person. has been given unto me. He's talking about the me in, the, in John chapter 1 when it talks about that he is the word. And the word became flesh. He's talking about who he is. He is the second person of the Godhead. He's the second person of the Trinity. Now, it's hard for us to get our minds around the Trinity. How how the Trinity operates within a divine essence or a divine nature. And within that nature or that divine nature, there's, there's the person of the Father. There's the person of the Son. There's the person of the Holy Spirit. And they are all one because they're all one in nature. They're all one in divinity. But when Jesus here in this text is saying, all authority has been given unto me, he's talking about his position, I believe, within the Trinity and what he does within the Trinity for the work that God is doing on planet Earth. He's the one that was in in Luke chapter 2. He, his actual person was placed in the womb of Mary and, and his person was united with, uh, with humanity, with flesh and blood. It's an amazing thing. In theology, we call this, if you go up to Faith Baptist Bible College or you go to a lot of Bible colleges, probably some of them aren't even teaching it anymore, but they ought to be teaching it. If you go to Faith Baptist Bible College, they still teach it. It's called the hypostatic union of the two natures of the second person of the Godhead. That's the hypostasis, the word hypo or hypo, that which stands under. The hypostatic union, the second person of the Godhead, the hypostatic union of the two natures of the second person of the God, of the Godhead. It's when deity and humanity function and they don't mix much in the scriptures, but who manages it? It's the second person of the Godhead that manages it. That's why Jesus in his humanity is sleeping in the bottom of a boat because he's a man. And the, and the disciples are up in the boat. They're rowing like crazy and they're taking on water and they think they're going to perish. And the second person of the Godhead in his humanity is sleeping like a baby in the bottom of a boat. And they wake him up and say, we're going to perish. And he stands up and says, oh, you guys. He, I don't know if he said that. He said this. Oh, you of little faith, be still. And the Sea of Galilee went thump. Because he is the one who can command it. He is the one who brought it into existence. He was the one who was in Genesis chapter 1, who spoke according to the will of the Father and all of the Trinity working together. And he spoke and the heavens became a reality and the earth was in the midst of it. He's the one that created the animals. He's the one that spoke. I was doing a, I was doing a study on the, uh, the culture of heaven. A very interesting study. 
and whether the culture of heaven, uh, if I die right now, okay, if all of a sudden I have a heart attack, boom, okay, I'm going to go to heaven. All right, I'm going to stand before God. Heaven is a location. Whatever, wherever that is, wherever, where God reigns. I was doing a study on what is the culture of that, that arena where God functions called heaven. And I was doing a, a study in comparison to the culture of our eternal state, which is in the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem, and they are totally two different cultures. Okay, they operate totally separate. But in the midst of that study, I, I, was, I was reading Revelation 20 and 21 and studying through that, and I got to the point where the second person of the Godhead, the Lamb of God, the one who, who has the church with him at that point, we have, we have been resurrected. We have been given our new bodies at, in chapter, by, by chapter 20. We are standing right next to him as his bride when he says, Melt it with a fervent heat. <laughs> and the heavens are melt with a fervent heat. This is after the great white throne judgment. It's after sin has been dealt with. It's after Hades has been dealt with. It's after the earth is empty and there's nothing left in it. And we, his bride, are standing there with him. And he says, melt with a fervent heat. And then after that's all over with, he'll say with just, I imagine, a few words. This is what text says. I make all things new. We're going to be standing right next to him. Nobody was next to the Trinity in Genesis chapter 1. But if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're going to be standing right next to him as his bride. When he says, I make all things new, and the new heavens come into existence, and the new earth come into existence. And I'm here to tell you that the person of this commission is not just Jesus That is his humanity, that he bore in his body the consequences of our sin. But who he is, is the second person of the Godhead who has created everything and works in sync with the Father and in sync with the Holy Spirit. And I doubt very much when I die and get to heaven, I'm going to enter in in a human way and say, Hey, bro, give me five, high five, Jesus. Nah. Ah, the Apostle John didn't do that. Christianity is diminishing today in America the emphasis that he is God and that he is the second person of the triune Godhead. And when the triune Godhead speaks in this second person, we have something significant to hold our hat, hang on our hats or hang our hat on and to work for because when he speaks... We ought to listen. And when he's going to commission us forth, he is the very person of this commission. I think we, we, we identify very easily and rightfully so. We identify with his humanity. But I have to keep bringing myself back from just his humanity and understand who he is as a person and then to understand his power and his divinity so that I don't panic in the midst of life like the disciples did and think they're going to perish 
when I am connected in the commission to the very God of heaven and earth. And we must think this way. And it revolutionizes the mandate because he is the person of the mandate. He is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And that in and of itself is a connection to the Great Commission that if we miss, it diminishes the ability to do what he asks us to do. I'm going to explain that. Can I shed this thing? It's hot up here. I don't think it's hot up here. It's just I'm putting out a lot of energy and putting out heat. The second thing I want to look at is I want to look at the provision for this mandate. And the provision is found in one word in verse 18. Really, it's a it's a combination of two words, but all authority. This is the provision of this mandate. All authority. I want you to listen to the word. And when I speak it, you'll just listen to it. You'll hear it in the word. This is the word exousia. It's the right to exercise. He is saying all authority or all right to exercise has been given to me. Now, we study another place. It's been given to him by the Father. He is going to manage it from the right hand of the Father once he arrives in heaven. He's already commissioning his disciples. He's already laying the foundation for this commission. But he says here, all authority. The word authority is this word exousia. It comes down from another word, which means this. It is lawful. This word is used of kings and emperors and people who had unlimited power. He says, I have the right. It is lawful for me to ask anything of my subjects or of my people. It is lawful. It is the right to exercise. This is some definitions of the word. The authority that one possesses, the liberty... To rule as one pleases. The authoritative right to ask anything. See, if if a king in that day said, I want this to happen, immediately everybody scurries to get that done. This is the idea of the word. And Jesus uses it here in a very particular way. It It is that right to manage to move people, resources. It's the right to say no. This right was exercised in Peter's life in the book of Acts. Remember the Lord came specifically to Peter and said, Peter, I want you to go to Cornelius' house. There's a messenger going to come, and I want you to go over to Cornelius' house, and I want you to go into that house, and this is what you're going to do. And what did Peter say? Nay, Lord. No, that's a Gentile house. If I go in that house, I will be unclean. And what was Jesus' response to Peter? What I call clean, don't you call unclean. Jesus gave him the smackdown. What I tell you, don't you argue with me. 
If I tell you to go into a Gentile house, you go into a Gentile house. Get rid of your religion, so to speak. You gotta let, you gotta let go of Judaism, Peter. You gotta go into that house because the gospel is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And Peter was learning a huge lesson. Remember when Paul was trying to go up through after the first missionary journey? He was trying to go north and he wanted to go up to Asia. He wanted to go to Bithynia. And he's on his way to Bithynia and he said he had set his heart towards Bithynia. And on his way up through there, the Lord stopped him by the Spirit of God and said, I don't want you to go to Bithynia. I got to go to Bithynia. I don't want you to go to Bithynia. I want you to go to Troas. Troas? Why in the world would I want to go to Troas? That's where Paul came from. I don't need to go to Troas. I need to go to Bithynia because Bithynia doesn't have the gospel. I need to be in Bithynia. And the Lord said, don't go to Bithynia. You go to Troas. Well, Paul was obedient. This is the point of the word. He has the right to exercise because he knows what's in Bithynia. Paul didn't. Paul had no, Paul wanted to go up there and do an evangelistic ministry and start a church up there. He had no idea that there was already a group up there from the dispersion out of Jerusalem. And the Lord was simply directing his steps because the Lord was working in Macedonia. And while Paul is in Troas, the Macedonian call comes to him to go over there in the book of Philippi. The book of Philippians is all about what happened over there. My point is this. It is lawful for him to move people and resources. It's lawful for him to call upon you and to call upon me to move us where he wants us to go for the purposes of 19 and 20, which has to do with the Great Commission. He can do whatever he wants. In fact, if you take this word, it is lawful, which you got exousia, you come down a level, and you get the word lawful, and you go down one more level, guess what the word is? I am. It's lawful for him because he is the I am. And he has the right to exercise whatever he desires in order to accomplish his purposes. I told the story in Sunday school about him asking me to leave the area in New York State and come out to, uh, to uh, Ohio to lead Baptist Church planters. And I didn't want to do it. That was one of those moments where I just said, no, I don't want to do that. Well, guess what? God had to remind me, Jesus had to remind me, this is not about you. This is about my plan. And I've only got so many years to work it out. And I was either going to live in rebellion to his purposes and what he was asking me to do because it was lawful for him to do that. I didn't like it so much, but it was lawful for him to say, I need you in Grafton, Ohio, and I want you to do this. Now, you would think that when we take those steps of obedience, everything going to be hunky-dory. Uh, no. No. Because through the process of that, he's teaching us to trust him. It's all about him. And it's about our relationship with him. I have a pastor friend of mine. You know, he was in Bible college like a year or two ahead of me. 
And he and I were both dairy farmers. His name was Bill. And he just, he would, I mean, he sat there in theology class, just tears running out of his, his, his eyes, just taking up all the different theologies of what, what God had done and what, what sanctification was, all this stuff. He just was a great guy and became a great pastor in Pennsylvania. And one day as he was pastoring there, he came upon a car wreck. And he was the first one there, and it was a, it was a total mess. The car was upside down. There was glass everywhere. There were a couple people outside the car. There was a person or two in the car. And he crawled in the car to get that person out because it's smoldering. And he didn't know what was going to happen. He, nobody else is there. He's the first one. He, that was before the days of cell phone. And he went, he went in there, and he crawled in the car, and he pulled these people out and got them outside, tried to help them. Finally, uh, ambulances came and took care of it. And years and years later, he started getting sick. Now, you'd have thought, a guy who goes out of his way and rescues people, he's given his life to the Lord. While he's in Bible college, he hears a mission in chapel. He hears a missionary story about his need, and he went home. He still had his farm, the land and buildings. He had sold his cows and his equipment to go to Bible college. But in chapel, he hears the need of this missionary, and the Lord spoke to him and said, Bill, why don't you go home and sell your farm and give it to that missionary? He's like, I don't know if I heard that right. This is what I want you to do. Bill went home, sold his farm, $120,000 at that time, and gave the whole amount to that missionary. I mean, you would think that you do what God asks you to do. He would just bless your life and everything would be hunky-dory. Bill crawls into that car. Ten years later, he gets sick and finds out he has AIDS. The people in that car had AIDS. And he crawling in there cut himself up, and his blood got mixed with theirs. And it took time. But the, the doctor finally said, I, I think you have AIDS. And Bill says, AIDS? I'm, I don't have AIDS. I'm a pastor. I've never been with any other woman other than my wife. He had AIDS from that moment. Nearly died. But this is what Bill told me. There's a small book that was written on it. I can't remember the name of it. Bill said this, Steve. Yeah, it was not fun. I mean, I've laid at the edge, he, he said, I've laid at the edge of death a couple of times, not knowing whether to see my wife again because of the struggles with my body immune system and all that. But he said, I want you to know something. God has so used AIDS in my life to reach so many doctors and nurses and people in the community that I would have never had opportunity to meet without this thorn in my flesh. And I'm here to say that Jesus has the right and the authority to do what he needs to do. And, and, and it doesn't seem to always fit our American Christianity of wealth and prosperity Jesus interrupts that process because he has the right to call upon us to do whatever he allows to come into our life for his purposes, for this gospel. I don't know what he's asking you to do. I don't know what he's calling upon you to do. 
He may be calling up. I have no to. I have not talked to your pastor. He may be calling upon you as a church. You've got something in the forefront that's big, and it looks really big. In your life, you may have something that seems astronomical. But I want to tell you something. He's the one with a word that brought the universe into existence. Our problem is minuscule to his power. But I need to come under his right and his authority to exercise what he desires in my life, whether it's to remove something, whether it's to bring something in. I need to give him that right and submit to that. And that is the provision of this commission. Now, that's one side of it. The, the right to move in the lives of his, his people. I want to I break this down in his right to move before the throne of God on the behalf of a sinner. See, as much as I enjoy this time of my life and all the challenges that come with it and all that, when I was 15 years old, I got on my knees in a little room off from Breesport Baptist Church in New York State, in Breesport, New York. I got on my knees at 15 years old, and I cried out to Jesus to save me and deliver me from my sin and all of that. At that moment of the expression of my faith, Jesus was at work with his authority also at that moment. If I went around the room and just asked you, uh, you know, when were you saved? I used to do that at Heritage Baptist in Canastota when I was. Tell me, just stand up and tell me when you were saved. What year was it? And sometimes it was a year. Another time it was it was about the, 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 the where you were at. And so people would do that, and that was a lot of fun. And what, what it represents is, is this. For all of those people and for all of you, just stop and think back. Where was I at? Kind of, what did I say? What did I express to him? Just take a moment and think. On that day, and it's, it's a smattering of dates in this auditorium, and it's a whole smattering of circumstances But it is the same for every one of us when we cried out in an expression of faith. And I said, in however it was expressed, I put my full faith in you. You are the only one. Without you, I am lost. I trust you. I believe in you. However it was expressed, I confess to you. I repent to you. Whatever it was that you said that was an expression of your faith to him. This is what happened in heaven. And it is the full-blown right, and it is lawful for him to turn on your day of expression of faith. It is lawful, it is the exousia right of his to turn to the Father and say, Mary Jones just confessed to me that I, she needs me to be her Savior. Father, I have the right of representation at your throne on Mary's behalf. Forgive her. Cleanse her. Father, write her name in the book of life. When you look at her, Father, you look through me. 
I am Mary's righteousness. He also had that right on the day you were saved. Would it not be also his right then, seeing he has saved you and redeemed us and delivered us and written our name in the book of life, and he will en- we will enter his rest when we die because of that, would, not, would it not be his right to call upon us in the midst of our journey of faith with him and say, I need you to do this. I need you to go here. I'm calling upon you to give this. I'm calling upon you to let that go. I'm asking you to trust me because I am God. See, if, if, since you're in the auditorium this morning and if you have never expressed personal faith to him and to him alone, you're trusting in nothing else and you communicate to that to him. If you will communicate to them, I want you to know if you're not saved, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to ask you to think and to think about your own life. And to think about what he did in a historical way, but also in a spiritual way, that he is the God of heaven and earth. He is the second person of the Godhead. He bore your sin in his body. He bears in his body the marks of crucifixion. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will make intercession for you. He will pay for, completely pay for all of your sin. He will exchange your sin and give you sonship in the Father. He will become that go-between between you and the very God of all the heaven and earth. If you've never done that, I encourage you today to simply express. It's a very personal thing. It's a very intimate thing between you and God. Express your personal faith. After you've expressed your personal faith, I'm, I'm confident from the Scriptures, He will represent you and He will represent you well. After you have experienced that, you have done that, go and sit down with somebody. If you need help understanding more information, pastor, deacons, people of this church, we're willing to show you. And if you say to me, Steve, you don't know my life. You don't understand how bad I am. You don't understand the things that I have done. I would like you to talk to Chuck. Because when I was in Brazil, I ran into a guy by the name of Chuck who was in Brazil illegally. He he was a drug dealer in Miami. His mother was a prostitute. His daddy was a drug dealer. He was a drug dealer. He was wanted by the Miami Police Department. He was facing 16 years of imprisonment. He jumped country, bought a $5,000 passport, illegal passport, and he ends up in a city of 4 million. And in, in that city of 4 million, he ends up by God's providential work. He ends up in a little church plant in, in Setubal, Brazil, which is a suburb of the big city of Recife, 4 million. Chuck reads the word of God for six weeks, falls on his knees before God, confesses his sin, asks Jesus to save him, and Jesus saved him of all of it. So don't tell me you're so bad. I put you up against Chuck. You, you won't hold a candle. He was ready to kill a man. He, he, he had married a stripper in, in, in Miami. I, I mean, his whole life was a shipwreck. If you come to my office at BCP, you'll see a letter that hangs on the wall from the American consulate, from the Council of the American consulate about, about 
the work that we did in repatriatizing an American fugitive back into the judicial system of the United States of America. That letter, it means squat to me in regards to the American judicial system, which I love and wholeheartedly respect. But it's a letter that represents a lost person who was repatriatized back into the family of God. And that is what this commission is about. But we have to be in the way of people. It was messy. I mean, Chuck was a mess. Six months of discipleship after he was saved, he came to me. And never once said he had to go back to the U.S. He came to me and said, i I got a problem. I said, what's your problem, Chuck? How can I say that I am a committed Christian And I know that I am wanted for 16 years of imprisonment in the United States. I said, good question. I mean, who am I to say what he needs to do? I just said, well, what do you think God wants you to do? And that began a process of him being flown back to the U.S., being handcuffed, coming off a plane in Miami being taken, and went to prison. So what are you holding back? That you know that Jesus has the right to ask you to do. And if you're not saved, I want to tell you, (laughs) Jesus saved Chuck to the uttermost. In fact, the night Chuck called me, and that night when he got on his knees out, he lived in a, he lived in a mansion. I mean, it was a seven or nine bedroom house with seven bathrooms, full bathrooms on a full city block, Olympic sized swimming pools, gardens, all that kind of stuff. He called me one night, the night he got saved, and he said, Steve, I just got off my knees. He was weeping. He got, I just got off my knees, and I want to tell you that I am no longer a fugitive of God. I am a son. And he said, I want to give you the verse that God gave me. Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, through Jesus, since He, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. This is the work of Jesus. And I want to tell you, when you apply this work and this authority and this right and this exousia of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, it gives us reason to go into the earth in our goings to introduce good news to those we run into in our path, that there is a Savior who will represent them, who will forgive them, who will save them to the uttermost if you will come to him. The place of this commission is in two places. It's happening on earth and in heaven, the text says. He says, given to me in heaven, in heaven, and on earth. He's anticipating his arrival. This work of this commission, it's this authority, it's this what he's going to do through his church is going to be in heaven, and it's going to happen on earth. 
For Chuck, it was happening in Recife, Brazil. It was where the work was happening. The Word of God was doing the work. The Spirit of God was doing the work. Chuck responds to that work, cries out, and then there's that representation in heaven. The same thing happened the day you were saved. You had a human representative at the throne of God with all the marks of crucifixion yet bearing in his body for you and for me. It is no wonder that Jesus therefore says, therefore, in your goings, make disciples, make followers. See them baptized, teach them. So this week, as you go, you're going to run into all kinds of people. Last night was the event. This week is a process. When you, in your goings, introduce people by a lifestyle of righteousness, but introduce them through what you say about him, what you say about what he will do for them. Sometimes it's simply, how can I pray for you? What can I do? I want to show you what God has done in my life and give. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful little text of your son Jesus, his last, some of his last words. Might you use it in our lives for your glory and for our good. And this week, Father, I imagine we're going to meet all kinds of people in all kinds of condition. We're going to meet the beer can bakers of the world. We're going to meet the Chucks, possibly. We're going to meet the Mikes and the Harrys, the Susans, the Brendas, whatever the person that need to know who you are and need to see our lives living, being lived out in a fashion that represents you. Go with us. Help us to see. Help us to be observant to those around us for the sake of your work, for the commission you have given us, and for really for our well-being to live in obedience to you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.